You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. A lot of girls want a career that's soul-searching, that's fortifying, that's life-changing, that will change the world. And so much about changing the world helps when you know how to code. Like if we want to find a cure to COVID or cancer or climate, it's going to be a technical solution. Her Money is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. When it comes to your money, empowerment is key. You need confidence in your ability and your strategy. So visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today because it's time to take control of your financial future and feel empowered for what's ahead. Hey everybody, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me on Her Money today. As I was prepping for the show this week, I started thinking about just how many question marks there are surrounding the future of women at work because so much has changed for us. During the pandemic, women's unemployment rose to nearly 15%. We lost over $800 billion in wages. And then just within the last year, a historic number of women left their jobs as part of the so-called great resignation, resulting in the lowest workforce participation rate for women since 1988. And we could dissect the reasons for this all day long. For starters, many women were forced out of the workforce due to childcare responsibilities, caring for their older parents, some lost jobs. But on the other side, many have just left lucrative careers voluntarily to find jobs that pay more and offer more flexibility. There is so much happening right now that I wanted to take a little bit of time to discuss not just where we've been, but where we're going. What do we actually need now in 2022 to get back into the workforce to have fruitful and meaningful careers and lives. And I could not think of a better person to join me to talk through all of this than Reshma Sajani. Reshma is the founder of Girls Who Code and the Marshall Plan for Moms. She has spent more than a decade actually advocating for women and girls economic empowerment, working to close the gender gap in the tech sector, and most recently, championing policies to support moms impacted by the pandemic. She is also the author of the international bestseller, Brave Not Perfect, and her new book, Pay Up, The Future of Women and Work and Why It's Different Than You Think, just hit bookshelves yesterday. Reshma, congratulations, welcome, I have wanted to have you on the show for so long. I can't even tell you. Oh, I'm so excited to be here and have this conversation with you. Absolutely. And we have a lot to talk about, but I want to start with the new book because I'm dying to know the answer to the question in the title. What is the future for women and work and why is it different than we think? Well, it's different than we think because for most of us, we've been sold what I like to call the big lie that we could girl boss and lean in our way to the top. And it was simply just an express train to the corner office. And I've spent most of my career kind of preaching the gospel of professional ambition. And the truth is, I was wrong. 
you know, we do participate in the workforce and live in a society that was not only not built for us, but is stacked against us. And it doesn't matter how many leadership courses we take. It doesn't matter how much we lean in. What we've learned is that having it all is just a euphemism for doing it all. And so we have an opportunity to never waste a crisis, right? And we have an opportunity as we get out of this pandemic, you know, to create foundational change in our workplace. And so this book isn't about fixing ourselves, but it's about changing a broken system that was never built for us. When did you have the epiphany? When did you realize that we couldn't girl boss our way to the corner office, that leaning in really wasn't working? For me, it was the pandemic. You know, I started the pandemic with Girls Who Code having a Super Bowl ad. I was having my second child. I was having him via surrogate because I had had years of fertility issues. And I was really looking forward to taking my maternity leave and bonding with Cy. And the pandemic hit and I found myself having to go back to work when he was just four weeks old, homeschooling my kindergartner and, you know, saving a, a nonprofit that was focused on women and girls. Because when crises hit, economic crises hit, the first organizations and companies to get hit are ones that are serving women and girls. And so here I was as a CEO of a $25 million organization running a large, large team and I got COVID-19, it barely registered, you know, I, my liver failed, I was a mess. And my leadership team, who are all parents of young children, were as exhausted as me. And many of us said to each other, you know what, let's just grin and bear it. And when the schools open in the fall, everything will be fine. And then the schools never opened in the fall. And all of us got a note, you know, from our public schools saying, congratulations, we've come up with this thing called hybrid learning where you are going to get to log on your kid at Zoom at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and 11 o'clock, all the while you maintain your full-time job. And I naively thought, Jean, that somebody was going to ask me, hey, Reshma, I know you're a full-time CEO, you got two kids, you got a full plate on your hands. Do you have time to homeschool your kids? But I didn't get asked. None of us did. And they just knew that we would do it, and we did, at the expense of our jobs, 11 million of us, like you said, pushed out of the workforce at the expense of our mental health. 51% of mothers report having anxiety and depression at the expense of our dreams. You know, we don't talk about all the dreams that were lost that women, you know, had before this pandemic and no one had a plan. Largest exodus of women leaving the workforce in the history of our nation, no plan. And that's what inspired me to build this movement and to write this book. Yeah, when I saw this title for your book, I thought, okay, she's definitely switched gears. Something big happened here. But I think you're right. I think a lot of us just slog through it. Look, I consider myself so fortunate that my kids were already out of school, that I was just a little bit older because it was so much easier, I think, for women our age to cope. And still we were hit with more housework and more cooking and more cleaning and just more, more, more of everything. So when you decided that you were going to start this new movement, what were the building blocks? What were the tenets? And how do you want women to participate today? If you had asked me if I was going to build a movement about the economic recovery of mothers, I would have told you that you were crazy. My first child, I saw him an hour a day. 
I didn't see him crawl, walk, talk. And I thought that that was the cost of being a CEO, of being a boss. And so this was a very big shift for me, even in my learning curve of understanding this, why, you know, pay up the history of women in work, you know, why feminism never really fought for us to have equality in the home, except for the women in wages for housework campaign, but how we had assumed that our equality was in the workplace and how for so long we have been telling women, if you got a mentor and a sponsor, you will get there. And so I think my first aha about it was when I wrote an op-ed called The Marshall Plan for Moms, I made the mistake of looking at the comment section. And I never would have thought that motherhood, working motherhood was controversial. Wait, just stop there for a second. The Marshall Plan for Moms, for people who don't know what it is, what is it? Why is the name significant? And then what did they say in the comments? So, you know, The Marshall Plan for Moms was an op-ed that I wrote basically in uh, December of 2020, as we had seen this largest exodus of women leaving the workforce being like, well, what's the plan? We need a plan. And this feels like World War II bombed out cities where both the government and the private sector kind of said, we need full-scale investment, right? In what I was saying is we need full-scale investment in getting mothers back to work and rebuilding workplaces, you know, so they finally work for moms. And that meant we need paid leave. The United States is the only nation that doesn't offer paid leave. You know, we need affordable childcare. The United States also ranks at the bottom in terms of the childcare benefits that it provides to mothers. Childcare in this country is more expensive than paying your mortgage. So the vast majority of people spend almost 40% of their income on childcare expenses. And I argued for payments to moms. Uh, this has now come in the form of the child tax credit, but moms needed cash. In many countries, this is not controversial for the government to pay people when they have children whether they are or are not in the workforce. I also argued that we needed schools to open up safely and then we needed to retrain women whose jobs had been lost during the pandemic. I followed this up with a full page ad to Joe Biden in the New York Times that were signed by women who, from Amy Schumer to Gabrielle Union to Mindy Grossman to Aijin Poo, you know, activist leaders saying, moms don't work for free. We are not America's social safety net. And as you think about your priorities in the first 100 days, Think about us. Marshall Plan for Moms is now a 501c3. You know, we're building essentially a movement. And what we're focused on as we continue to hope that Congress gets their head right and passes Build Back Better. But what we continue to do is put pressure on the private sector, just like they did during the Marshall Plan for Moms, where the private sector stepped up and provided support. And this book, in many ways, is the manifesto for the movement to tell moms in the workplace who are so like, what do I do? To first say, you deserve something. You are not a martyr. Do not be tricked, like the comments, to say that motherhood is a choice and you should suffer in silence. Your government should do something for you. Your employer should do something for you. Your partner should do something for you. Here's the story, right? Here's the playbook of what they should do and what you should be advocating for. So you're preaching to the choir here. I agree with everything that you just said. And I think that childcare, above all, affordable childcare is the game changer for so many moms and so many families. And I think I share your frustration at Congress, that it boggles my mind that they can't get out of their way and do something. Until they can, what can we do? If Lean In was yesterday's advice, 
What's the advice for today to help us help ourselves in order to get back into the workforce if we want, start a business if we want, get our husbands to vacuum if we want? Like, what's the playbook? Yeah. So let's start with your company. If Congress can't provide support, then we shouldn't waste a good crisis. And every CEO in America, in order to retain the talent that they need, need to start having this conversation. Because this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to change the way we work once and for all. So in this book, I lay out like nine things that employers should do today, but I'll give you three. So the first thing is subsidizing childcare. Right now, less than 11% of companies subsidize childcare. And as you mentioned, when you started this conversation, all studies have basically shown that the reason why there's still 1.1 million women out of the workforce is because of childcare, right? Where the government has failed us, employers have a massive opportunity to step up and they need to do the math, right? The cost that companies are paying for turnover is much higher than if they paid for our childcare. So I don't think people understand how expensive it is to hire. I mean, it costs a year's worth of a person's salary, sometimes a year and a half in order to hire. Yeah. And the other thing that's so interesting, Jean, right, is like we're paying for egg freezing and museum memberships and happy hours, but they're not helping us with childcare. And I think it's like ridiculous. And the way that we need to present childcare is an economic issue. And companies should be subsidizing childcare in the way that we, like healthcare, like you, you don't work for a company that doesn't provide you healthcare benefits. And the same thing needs to be about childcare. The second thing that I think is really critical that we have companies start advocating on is incentivizing paid leave for men. It's crazy that in this day and age, companies like Apple still don't have gender neutral paid leave policies, right? And even where it's offered, men are not taking it. And this has consequences for women, both in our careers and at home. I mean, the reason why we're doing the cooking and the cleaning and the cognitive labor is because it started, I mean, think about this in my marriage. It started when Sean came home and I took leave and my husband didn't. My to-do list went like this and his went like this. And it never changed until I wrote this book. But that is why it's so important, right? For companies at the get-go to recognize that they actually play a role in exacerbating gender inequality at home. And to go through their policies, one of which is not having gender neutral paid leave and not incentivizing or mandating paid leave for men in exacerbating the gender equality. And the final point that I think companies have to really start focused on right now is supporting women's mental health. Even as we are returning back to the workplace, we are broken. We are burnt out. We've been through trauma. Our kids have been traumatized. And employers have to recognize this and start providing support for us. The second thing that's part of this book is you asked, what do our partners have to do? And the way that I framed it in the book is what do we have to do? And what do we have to do? Because I I don't want to give women just another thing that they have to fix. It is not my fault that my husband doesn't do 60, right? And we have taken that out, which is why we don't tell the truth about it. And we lie on Instagram because we feel like it's our shame. What we need to do is start establishing tangible boundaries for ourselves and keep them. In my house, my husband does nights. I do days. I have a two-year-old and a seven-year-old, right? So this is the nights and the days, right, are very important when you have young children. And listen, if I'm sitting around watching Netflix at 6 p.m. or finishing a call, my husband will say, hey, can you warm up the bottle? 
will you just change size diaper real quick? And so I just leave the house every night and I go for a walk. I get a glass of wine. I have dinner. I am not here. I take my time back. I've created a boundary. And part of learning those boundaries at home helps me establish those boundaries at work. No, I will not get back online at 6 p.m. I'm off. No, I will not apologize when I have to leave this call because I have to take my kid to the doctor's appointment, right? No, I'm not coming into the office till 9.30 because I want to drop my kid off at school. We have to start establishing boundaries at home and at work and not apologize for them. And again, this is something that I don't think that we have been taught. You know, for too long, we have been taught to prove that our motherhood is not going to get in the way of our career and our ambition and our work product. And so we have burned it at both ends. And when we didn't get that corner office, when we didn't get that job, we thought we just weren't qualified enough and we didn't take enough classes. Not that we had another job, a full-time job and a half, that we were already doing. Let me ask you, because we've got, and we know this, we've done a number of shows on women who are childless by choice. What do you say to women who say, why should my employer subsidize childcare if I'm not going to have any children? Where's the benefit to me in that? Yeah, well, first of all, we have the lowest birth rate that we've had in the history of our nation, right? 50-year low. And, you know, I think that the first thing about creating these structures of care, whether it's take care of your kids or take care of your elderly parents, is we want to give people choices. In many ways, we've taken that choice away from people who choose to not have children because they look at us and it's so hard and it's so expensive, right? And secondly, I just think that part of, you know, it's funny, I feel like the CDC just released a study of like the two groups are the most anxious and depressed are people between 18 and 24 and moms. And it's for the same reasons because we've pushed and we've pushed and we've pushed and we've not allowed them to have anything less for themselves. And the structure that we're trying to create at work is allowing you to have a full life, allowing you to have a family and a job and not have to pick between one or the other. It's almost bringing our family values back to the workplace, which will benefit everyone. I'm sure, Jane, you've looked at the great quit numbers, and men are quitting too, and they're often quitting because they want to spend more time with family. They too are so gaslit at work that they can't say, hey, I want flexibility because I want to take my kid to work. They rather quit. That is what is so broken with our culture. We are seeing a number of big companies, companies whose names that you read in the news, Goldman Sachs, investment banks saying, okay, we're going to step up and we're not going to email you after a certain hour. We're going to insist that you take your weekends. We are going to insist that you take your vacation. And yet there are so many of us who don't work for companies like that, who work for smaller companies that maybe aren't in the news, that make their own policies, and where the element of work-life balance isn't necessarily a matter of policy. And so I'm just wondering, you know, if you work at a place, big or small, where you're still expected to 
answer email at all hours. You're still expected, because the emails come in, you're still expected to take calls on your vacation. How do you set those boundaries? How do you do it? And these days, I think there's a pretty slim chance of it reverberating because it's so hard to hire anybody. But what's your best advice for doing it? Well, that's why I think actually there's a moment now, right? I mean, you've seen Amazon just increase its base salary. Gap just increased its salary for workers in retail. Like, I think that there's an opportunity, even as we talk about childcare, for that not only to be offered to salaried employees, but hourly employees. We're in a talent war across the gamut. I mean, restaurants, retail, healthcare, education. The people that we need the most are teachers, are nurses. They're quitting and leaving and they're getting jobs in tech. And so there comes to a place where you can only pay people so much more. And it doesn't make sense for a company, right? Because if they're gonna, you're gonna double their salary, they're gonna leave in four months, you're out money, as we talked about earlier. But if you start, and I've seen this at Girls Who Code, like if you start paying for people's childcare, if you start offering them flexibility or predictability, if you are an hourly worker, if you start again telling them, I care about you and your family, go home. And I'm not going to call you after five. I'm not going to call you on the weekends. That basically is a place where people want to work and it will create loyalty. I have been offering at Girls Who Code full paid leave before it was cool. I was hiring women that were eight months pregnant and saying, see you in six months. And we've had so much loyalty from our parents because we have a culture where everyone knows about everyone's kids. Our Halloween party is the kids' party. It's always been that way. And look, that doesn't mean that as a CEO, I definitely slipped a bunch of times. After years of fertility, I saw my son an hour a day. I'm ashamed of that. You know, and as I'm building the Marshall Plan for Moms, and I'm at every bath time, I do every meal, I fully feel like I am engaged as a mom in a healthy way. I feel healthier than I ever have. And I am building the largest movement you will ever see. And I'm doing it on my terms. And I'm setting the kind of example that I want to set as a CEO. And that's my challenge, I think, to leaders right now is that like, you know, you want to be a role model. And in this role model, I'm sorry, it's out to girl boss your way. It's out to be a, I don't sleep and I don't rest and I work all day long. Like nobody wants that. Nobody likes that. Nobody admires that. And so we can set a new standard. And that is if you own a bodega, if you have a small business, if you are like me or a growing nonprofit, or if you're Google or the big company, all of us have to change our values. I know we use the Nordic countries as an example for everything, but, you know, it is very different in different parts of the world. Yeah, it shows what's possible. I want to talk more about Girls Who Code before we end this conversation. But first, let me just take a quick breather to remind everyone that when we talk about things like grit and determination and strength and intelligence, that is what women are made of. And when it comes to finances, that's also what it takes to build a solid plan for your wealth. You can gain even more confidence in your financial future with an integrated approach to wealth management. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. You'll work with an expert 
to create a plan to help build, grow, protect, and preserve your wealth. As a woman, we've been talking about this all day, you are a doer, but don't hesitate to get the advice that you need to get it done right. I'm talking with Reshma Sajani, founder of Girls Who Code, author of Pay Up. So I wanna tell you about my daughter-in-law, Shelby, who was in this job that she just really hated. She was working at a nursery school. She was in kind of an admin-y role and she saw nowhere to go. And she enrolled in a coding boot camp. Fast forward a year, she is making six figures. She's got opportunities coming out of her ears. She's just on a trajectory and she's on a trajectory because she learned how to code. Is this the answer still for young women who are looking for a career where they will never have trouble getting hired? Maybe the answer for girls and for moms, right? I mean, part of the women that have been automated from these jobs should be learning digital skills to be prepared for the jobs that are open. You know, for so many girls and women, I was having a conversation about this earlier, about this idea of purpose. And so look, as a daughter of immigrants, it was very pressed upon me, you'll appreciate this, Jean, to get a job that was gonna pay you well. So you had economic security. So like in Indian communities, it's like, we all have this running joke. It's like, you can be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. That wasn't about purpose. That wasn't about Dharma. That was just about like wages. You know, that's a middle class to upper class wage. I'm Jewish. And so it's true for us too. <laughs> so a lot, right? So a lot of us made decisions based on that, not on like, I want to go save the world. Now, the flip side of that is a lot of girls want a career that's soul searching, that's fortifying, that's life changing, that will change the world. And so much about changing the world helps when you know how to code. Like if we want to find a cure to COVID or cancer or climate, it's going to be a technical solution. So I do think that in this moment, having that skill, you know, I, my husband and I have been doing this little sideshow called like Debrowing Crypto because Web3 is again, the new thing. And I want to make sure that women and people of color don't miss out. And you may never do it. You may never mint an NFT or buy some Bitcoin, but you better understand what I'm saying when I say Web3. And you want to feel like you are part of this emerging conversation in case you do have an amazing idea that you want to then be able to launch. So yeah, I guess short answer, I do believe that everyone should still learn how to code. So what's happening with Girls Who Code right now? I mean, you started us off with the story of how you struggled during the pandemic. Where are you right now? We're doing great. I have this new CEO, Trika Barrett, who's just incredible. You know, we've worked together for years and she has just taken the vision, the mission and just continued to build it. I couldn't be more blessed and have gratitude for having such an incredible leader at the helm of Girls Who Code. It will always be my baby. I still talk to girls every day about what they're doing and what they're building, what they're creating. I mean, I still want to encourage more of my students to build their companies. And so I'm a sounding board for a lot of them about businesses that they're thinking about building or problems that they're thinking about solving. I am looking like a hawk in terms of what's happening with K through 12 education because too many kids have been left behind, you know, during this pandemic, especially black and brown kids and want to make sure that they do have those jobs. 
So we're doing incredible work and the organization is good and strong. And as for the Marshall Plan for Moms, if we want to get involved, if we're listening to all of this like I am and just thinking, yeah, sign me up, what do we do? Well, first I want you to pick up my book, Pay Up, and I want you to read it and give it to somebody that you know. Like we cannot waste this opportunity to rebuild workplaces so they finally work for us. And so we've got to ignite a movement in workplaces. You know, secondly, go to marshallplanformoms.com. Sign up for our newsletter. Sign up for our petition. Get engaged. Sign up to be a pay-up advocate. You know, I have hundreds and hundreds of women who have signed up to be pay-up advocates. And we're starting to mobilize at their workplaces and mobilize for affordable childcare, mobilize for paid leave, mobilize to get rid of the motherhood penalty. Now is the time to make real lasting foundational change. Reshma Sajani, thank you so much for being with us today. Such an enlightening conversation. And thank you for everything that you're doing. We will be joining you. Thank you, Jean. Thank you for having me. We'll be back in a second with Catherine Tuggle and your mailbag. But first, let me remind everyone, Her Money is supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union. It's a great credit union that helps its members feel confident and assured with the peace of mind that comes from making smart financial decisions. If you've never been to the website of BCU, take a spin by. It's bcu.org. And when you're there, you can learn the various ways it can help you secure your financial future. Catherine Tuggle joins me as she always does for our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. Wow. That conversation with Rashma. I was just sitting here thinking she is the very definition of a change maker, that she's done so many things in her career, but they have all been to further that singular goal, I feel like, is to bring about change that women need in the workplace and in our careers and in all facets of our lives. And I love that she switched it up, right? I mean, Girls Who Code is a force. Girls Who Code is a success. She could have just kept on keeping on or keep on keeping on or however you say that. She could have just kept going with it, right? She could have just kept going with it, but she recognized another problem and she said, well, who better to tackle that than me? And you have to admire that. Absolutely. And she does it with such gusto too. You know, she's not afraid to tackle big questions, present big solutions, and drive change wherever it's needed, you know? Yeah. She thinks big, which I totally admire. I had an agent at one point, think bigger, just think bigger. And he was right. Sometimes you need to really just plant a stake in the ground and go for it, especially if you want to create big change in the world. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. We've got some questions I know today, so I want to dig in and get to them. Yeah. Our first question today comes from Molly. She writes, hi, Jean and Catherine. My question is annuities. What the heck is going on there? I'm nearing retirement, and I'm incredibly lucky to have several groups of intelligent, financially savvy girlfriends in my life. I'm so confused about annuities because I can't think of a single thing that my friends disagree on quite as much. For example, one friend whose financial opinion I respect has two separate annuities and swears by them. 
But another friend who's very financially savvy says that annuities are a waste of money and are only good for people who need to have an allocated amount of money given to them in retirement who might otherwise be tempted to spend beyond their means if given unfettered access to their life savings. So who's right? I feel like I'm missing something. Is an annuity something I need in retirement? I'm single, 64, with $1.2 million saved in my 401k, IRA, and a brokerage account. Thank you so much. Boy, oh boy, your your friends are really polar opposites there, Molly. And like so many things, I think the truth lies very much in the middle. And here's why. So annuities basically are structured to provide you with a stream of income in retirement, a retirement paycheck. And so your friend whose financial opinion you respect, who has two of them and swear by them, probably likes the idea, as I do, that you can take a chunk of your money, a chunk of your retirement nest egg, and you can convert it to a paycheck that will last as long as you last, right? She doesn't want to worry that she's going to outlive her money and she's willing to take the risk that she puts some of her money into an annuity, dies early and doesn't get that money back in order for that peace of mind. Your other friend who is also financially savvy probably also considers herself a very solid and disciplined investor and maybe has been told that as long as she spends no more than 4% of her retirement nest egg each and every year, her money will last as long as she does. I disagree with the second friend who says that annuities are only good for people who need to have an allocated amount of money, who would be tempted to spend beyond their means. I think that the real point of annuities and the reason that economists like annuities is because they help you eliminate longevity risk. What an annuity does for you is say, you're not going to outlive your money because I am going to keep paying you. Social security is an annuity. It's a paycheck that's going to come for as long as you live. Now, that doesn't mean that I think that you should take all of your nest egg and put it in an annuity. I definitely don't. I think you should consider covering your fixed expenses with a source of income that you can count on in retirement. That could be social security, that could be an annuity, that could be a pension if you're lucky enough to have one. But then you take the rest and you invest it to provide you with the sort of growth that you may need to keep up with inflation. So I kind of don't think either of your friends are right, and I think they're both kind of right. The second friend is also probably talking about the fact that there are some annuities where the expenses involved with them are higher than you 
may have to pay for other investments. And it's very, very true that you're going to want to look at any expenses involved, particularly commissions, with any investments or insurance policies that you buy. But over the past handful of years, annuities have become much more transparent. They're much easier to understand than they used to be. And the costs are coming down. There's an important law that you should know about called the SECURE Act, which was passed a few years ago. And one of the things that it allowed for was the inclusion of annuities in 401k retirement plans. In other words, you're going to start to see more and more annuities pop up within your 401k where you'll have the opportunity to annuitize a chunk of the money that you've amassed in that account. What we're seeing so far is that the costs on those annuities are going to be very reasonable in many cases. And so you're going to want to look at those options if annuities are things that are appealing to you. I hope that that helps. If you're looking for more information, I'm going to point you toward an organization called the Alliance for Lifetime Income. Her money and I do work with the Alliance for Lifetime Income, full disclosure. Their website is protectedincome.org, and you can find a lot of additional information on annuities there. Amazing, Jean. Thank you. And sure. on the topic of inflation, which is on everybody's minds these days, do annuities typically adjust for inflation? It depends on what type of annuity you buy. You can buy an annuity that adjusts for inflation. It's going to be more expensive. You're going to pay a premium for that inflation adjustment. And so you're going to want to make sure that you have figured out if that's worth it to you. In most cases, I believe they don't, especially with fixed annuities. And you'll get your inflation adjustment from the money outside of the annuity that you invest to keep up with inflation largely in stocks because that portion of your portfolio that you've already put to work for your fixed expenses has sort of taken the place of one of your bond components. It's become a lower risk element of your portfolio. Just for the record, Social Security is an annuity that does give you an inflation adjustment. And this year, for example, we saw a bigger adjustment than we've seen in some time because inflation is much higher than it's been in some time. Amazing. Our next and last question today comes to us from a member of our Private Her Money Facebook group. She writes, Hi, Jean. My husband and I need to do our will and trust. We own a home along with a couple of retirement accounts, and we have two adult children. Can we do something like legal Zoom, or do we need an attorney? We live in California. Thank you. I'd recommend an attorney. It sounds like you've got assets, you've got a home, you've got retirement accounts. I think that having a person in the loop to ask you questions about what you want and making sure that your assets are going to get into the right hands, that there are trusts in place if you need them to be, that you've got the other documents that go along with the will, the healthcare proxy, the durable power of attorney for finances, and the living will. 
I just went through this process with my husband redoing our wills. And I got to say, I mean, I do this for a living. And yet my attorney asked me a couple of questions where I had to truly think about the answer. And I had to go off and talk to Elliot about what I wanted the answer to be. Could a computer have done that? Possibly. I mean, LegalZoom is quite good. And I wouldn't say if you're looking to do this as inexpensively as possible, or if it's software or nothing, that you should not do it because you can only afford the software. In that case, I think software is the smart move. But if you can afford an attorney, I would go for an attorney. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jean, for the great advice. Thanks, Catherine. And in today's Thrive, the top financial scams going and how to avoid them. Scams are everywhere in 2022. And unfortunately, scammers are getting even craftier and harder to spot with the help of technology. Many of today's scams are designed to steal your money, sometimes over the long haul, sometimes in a single transaction. At hermoney.com, which we hope you'll check out, we break down the latest types of financial fraud to be aware of. First, there are imposter scams. According to the FTC's Consumer Sentinel Network, imposter scams rank as the most common and most successful scams out there. In 2021, they scooped up close to $550 million from consumers. These scammers pretend to be a business, a government entity, or a friend in need. And the biggest one happening right now is an Amazon scam. You receive a message via phone or email alerting you to a large, possibly fraudulent purchase on your account. You panic because who wouldn't and call the number back. And this can result in different outcomes, including the scammer stealing your username and password after you log into your account for them or malicious software loaded onto your computer after you get help from someone who says they're with Amazon tech support and promises to help you resolve the problem. Next, there's the urgent can you do me a favor scam where a scammer will pose as someone you know like a boss or a church leader. They'll text you to request you purchase some gift cards they didn't have time to pick up, maybe for a work event or a raffle. They say they'll reimburse you, but they need you to send photos of the front and back of the cards. And of course, you want to help. Scammers know this, which is why they usually claim to be a person in a position of authority, so you'll be more likely to complete the task quickly without questioning it or stopping long enough to think twice. Of course, you can probably guess the outcome. The scammer drains the money off the card through those photos and the money you put out is gone. Thankfully, there are ways to avoid these and other scams. We break them down at hermoney.com. So check it out. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Reshma Sajani for a wonderful conversation about how we can get the companies we work for to pay up and how we can get more women into STEM fields. We've got a long way to go, but I'm feeling pretty good about where we're headed. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. 
We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.